And we are live. This is Dark Journalist. Uh, it's great to be here with everyone. Of course, I'm joined by the lovely Olivia. Hi, everybody. And we have a very special guest tonight, and that is Dr. Joseph P. Farrell. Joseph, how are you? I'm good, Daniel. Trust in the plan. <laughs> <laughs> Where we go one, we go Fauci, right? Yeah, we go Fauci. Yes. <laughs> I forgot my Fauci goggles. Uh, I, I forgot my nose bag, too. So. <laughs> Unbelievable. Joseph, um, I have to say, we have so many things to get into tonight. Off the top, I want to say you have a new book out, which is called The Tower mm -hmm. of Babel Moment. Mm -hmm. Uh that book, you use a large format on that book. That's because Lulu messed up their website as only Bill Gates can mess up a website. <laughs> and I tried and tried and tried to get this thing into a trade paperback format. And it just wouldn't do it. And I just finally gave up and said, ah, to heck with it. So it came out in this big kind of coffee table format. Fantastic. People actually liked it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know. It looks say fun. what you will, but it's a fun book. It's it's just a book I was planning to do for a long time, and I was sitting around here trusting the plan and you know eating my popcorn, and I decided I might as well take this time and do the fun book I've wanted to do for a while. So I did it. So there it is. And you well, you had just done the series of McCarthy books, right? And uh, those were very heavy duty and they exposed mm -hmm. a lot. And even a Project Blue Book came up in there, as we know, which is, mm -hmm. I think, off the charts. And those books are just starting to sink in with how powerful uh, they are. This book, it's interesting to me because this phrase, you use it, uh, you used it before. I've actually seen you do lectures on the Tower of Babel moment. Mm -hmm. What is the significance of that? Well, that phrase actually is not mine. It comes from uh, Leonard Bernstein's Harvard Norton Poetry Lectures in 1973 called The Unanswered Question. Ah. And there are a series, the lectures are in six parts. You can go on YouTube and watch them, although I recommend people buy the DVDs and have them because they're, I, I watch them at least once a year because they're so thought provoking. But he uses that phrase in the first lecture, and, and the first time I heard it, it just stuck. And I, I tell people about that in, in that uh, Tower of Babel book, that it's actually his phrase. And it, you know, it's so perfect for describing what I think uh, may have been going on in people's heads you know, back in, in the post-war period, that they were worried about precisely another such event happening. So I've kind of picked it up and used it constantly. That's fascinating. And they would be looking at this kind of like other technology zooming around and figuring mm -hmm. out that we weren't alone. Right. And looking at it and saying, ah, going back, hearkening back to this story, you've pointed out the Tower of Babel moment literally and kind of esoterically when you look back. Mm -hmm. But it's a strange story in any case. Oh, it's a very strange story. I mean, it's it's odd just from the biblical point of view because yeah. in 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 the Bible, every time that you have an intervention by God in human affairs, usually the story gives you some sort of moral reason for the intervention. The Tower of Babel is unique in that in that sense because there's no reason given for the intervention, except if you read the story, it says if they finish this thing, they'll be able to do whatever they imagine to do. They won't be restrained from doing it. 
guys. Yes. And that's the reason for the intervention. It's like, okay, so somebody's afraid of this project being completed because these hairless monkeys are going to, you know, mess up the cosmos somehow with right. it. <laughs> and, you know, so we got to go down there and stop them. And the way, you know, the way it stopped is asymmetrical warfare. You, you interfere with the communications so that the people involved in the project aren't able to finish it. You know, it's kind of like that wonderful scene in, in uh, Lewis's, C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength, where you have this DARPA-like organization that all of a sudden gets you know, there's a there's kind of a magician figure in the story that casts the Babel spell, and the, they start babbling all this nonsense, right. and no one can understand each other, <laughs> so the whole project falls apart. Right. So you know, it's 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 classic asymmetrical warfare, interfere with interdict and interfere with communications. And, you know, it's a very strange story when you stop and think about it. It is. They're building a tower to the sky, and suddenly the gods show up. And they're no longer just one god, they are gods plural, and they reason among themselves. Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it's like us go down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we got a different group operating all we've got somebody going on there <laughs> that doesn't doesn't fit in too well with the narrative of monotheism, but <laughs> but anyway, you know, it's a it's a strange story. And the book, um, I go into all of the pseudepigraphal traditions about the Tower of Babel, because there's a lot of them. Uh, Sibylline oracles, uh, it's talked about in Enoch, it's talked about in the Book of Jubilees, then you've got, of course, versions of, of the story that are not, you know, that are not even from that tradition. You've got the Sumerian Babylonian version, you've even got hints of it in, in the Mayan Popol Vuh, you know, so there's all of these traditions about it, and when you start reading these traditions, that's where it really gets interesting. Yeah, because it's clear, and and from my point of view, you know, these traditions, I, I take them as as containing some sort of um, kernel of truth. Well, when you read some of these things, particularly the Book of Jubilees, it's very clear that they're talking about some sort of physics was involved with the project because they talk about the thickness of heaven and trying to bore into it and discover what it's made out of and so on and so forth. it's very weird weird stuff wow. and all of that in in traditions associated with the original biblical story so i'm thinking well where is this coming from right right <laughs> so i i you know i think there were uh bits and pieces of this story that were fragmented and then handed down and finally recorded. But, you know, it's a fun book. Really yeah, fun. yeah, it sounds fantastic. Uh, I Actually, when I think about the 20th century version of you bringing that in, it makes really a lot of sense because when you think about the mentality, and we're looking at this a lot now because you have groups like the Navy and the CIA pushing this whole UFO narrative and the UFO threat narrative. Um, and the fact that they want to push that so badly, and I've got articles here. Um, this is the front of the New York Times now, Joseph. No longer in shadows, Pentagon's UFO unit will make some findings public. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't wait for that. Um, and we all know how they rolled this out through TTSA and all these various things. Mm -hmm. My question is, though, now, in the middle of the whole COVID op and all these <laughs> things. 
Now they want to talk about UFOs. UFOs. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So they're positioning now. This is a backup op, or this is part of the whole thing. I think it's part of the whole thing. But to me, Daniel, the problem is, and, and I think we discussed this privately, the problem I'm having is an epistemological one. Right. Because let's let's just look at, at the federal government's track record here. The first thing they sold us was a magic bullet, okay? And on and on, this is gone. And then they sold us Waco, which was to protect the children. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, they, they've lied so many times. Then came 9-11 and, and that whole fracas. And now we've got the Fauci, Wuhan, Lieber, Bail Gates, you know, coronavirus narrative where the science flip-flops every day depending on what sort of political agenda they want to accomplish. I, I call it the magic virus. I mean, yeah. it's it, it, it can infect people at Trump rallies, but not protests, and churches, but not casinos. And, you know, it's just, you know, it's a magic virus. It does whatever you want it to do. Yes, exactly. You know. And I'm not saying that people aren't dying from this thing. That's oh, yeah? not what I'm saying. But I am saying that the narrative is so out of proportion and so self-contradictory. I mean, you know, we've got doctors being censored because they come out and contest the idea that, that these ridiculous nose bags are going to protect us from the virus uh, and complicate our health in other ways, you yeah. know. Um, the whole narrative is so bad. So my problem is epistemological. How... I'm wondering, do, does anyone who's been following all of this trust the government when it all of a sudden says, oh, we've got a special UFO study group? Well, they've had special UFO study groups since Blue Book. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and if you've, if you, yeah, yeah, you know, this, this has been going on for a long time, that the government is now coming out and saying, oh, yeah, we've got this. To me, I'm like, big deal. So what? Mm -hmm. You know, where are you getting these so-called videos? Are they vetted properly to make sure that they haven't been faked? Uh, are we really looking at an extraterrestrial technology? You know, because like like we've talked about so many times, that's a heck of a lot of money that went missing over several decades. And and yeah. in my opinion, twenty-one trillion. Yeah. Well, that's just what we know about. You yeah. know. Um, I, I really think this thing started after World War II, and the amounts of money are so astronomical that the only thing I can think of that would be an explanation for it is exotic and very expensive technolog technological research. Wow. So, you know, if the government comes out tomorrow and says E.T. is here and we're talking with him or her or it or whatever, um, Am I going to believe it? No, because I'm I'm too skeptical and jaundiced at this point. They're going to have to they're going to have to offer some pretty irrefutable stuff right. if they're going to make this stick. And you know they can't even get the narrative on the virus right. So I'm right. You know, I'm not I'm not holding I'm not holding my breath. You know for whatever they might come out and say about ET. Um, and if you know, I'm of the opinion that if the if the government's saying ET is a threat, then it probably isn't. And if it says they aren't, it probably is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the opposite rule. Uh, it's the opposite rule. Yes. I know. I know it's going to change your mind though, because this upstanding citizen got behind it, and he's the Florida senator. His name is Marco Rubio. 
<laughs> you know, Joseph Rubio says UFOs, they're a threat. They're a threat. Uh huh. Well, so, yeah. Um, again, forgetting about his neocon background for a second. <laughs> well, look, my problem is the Rubio bubble bath. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 all of that stuff about his background that makes me wonder yeah. just how he got elected. Because that little bubble bath episode, to me, uh, that's that to me that's just a control file. It's an indicator yeah. that there might be something more there than meets the eye, and that they've got him and, you know, he's going to put out whatever narrative that, that they want him to put out. So again, I'm very, I, I'm dubious about Dubio Rubio. Let, let Dubio. <laughs> well, that's what I've called him ever since he appeared on the stage. You can, you can go back and listen to George Ann Hughes and the bite show. And I, I was calling him that. Then. <laughs> but um, you know he ran for president. I went yeah, back. I know he ran for president. And, <laughs> was quickly ushered off the stage by Mr. Trump. You know, that was that was during the that those Republican primary meltdowns <laughs> that he was that he was serving. Jeb, yes. Oh, the the nine eleven comment to me is still a classic. <laughs> Just left Jeb speechless. That know. was the end of Jeb, actually. Yeah. Well yes, and you know, and his statement about Senator Cruz and his father, and now all of a sudden, Cruz is really on board. You know, <laughs> it makes you wonder. You know, dropping. I, I, yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. So Rubio, you know, he can say whatever he wants to, but again, he's putting this out without any argument, without any demonstration that ET may be a threat. Okay. Right. Now, I happen to think it's very possible because you can't read any of that ancient stuff and come away with the idea that these are our friendly space brothers. Yes. But um, by the same token, you've got you've got other stories that indicate, well, they're not entirely hostile either. So, mm -hmm. you know, give us something, Senator Rubio, for why you're saying this. Give us a reason. Well, let's look at a likely scenario. I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying there. They haven't produced anything. As a matter of fact, the videos they released came out on YouTube in 2007 originally. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. You know, what's the, what's this big release business? I mean, you know, I forget what the guy's name was that used to have uh, the night vision goggles. Yes. Where, you know, he was seeing all sorts of stuff in the sky and told other people, and they're looking up there, oh, yeah, look at that. Isn't that interesting? And, you know, this has been going on, and the government's finally saying, yeah, there's stuff up there. Oh, really? You know, we've seen the space shuttle videos, STS-48 with the space shuttle Discovery, STS-81 with the space shuttle Atlantis, and all those funny little things. That that's were, the real stuff. Yeah. yeah, that's the real stuff right there. I mean, come on. That's a lot better than the Tic Tac, shall we say. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, this is being treated as news by by the prop attainment media and, and, you know, it's like, okay, where have you guys been for the last 50 years? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's I mean, not real about this. Yeah, it is. And every time I see that Mellon, Christopher Mellon's involved of the Mellon banker family with all their billions and all the rest, and that he worked for W and all that, mm -hmm. you know, he works directly. He's part of the board of TTSA. And he always shows up in those New York Times articles. Mm -hmm. um, so that and that whole group of TTSA, they have over a hundred years of CIA experience on their board. So we know where this story is coming from. With those, sure. yeah, it's yeah. part of their op. Um, what I do find interesting 
and I'm going straight from this article here. Um, U.S. Navy UFO Task Force exists, and Rubio wants to know its data on aerial phenomena threats. This is getting interesting to me because um, it seems to me that even if they're sort of been watching for years the UFO thing, they don't quite know what they're dealing with, let's say. They want to create their own version that will serve their purposes. That's where right. the UFO threat comes from. That's where this whole let's accept UFOs because it was the top search on Google in 2018. They were probably like, there's no way around it anyway. Right. Right. Well, I do think you're right that there's an aspect of, of prepping a narrative here. Yeah. That, that you know, we're, we're seeing narratives being prepped all over the place. You know, the election is going to be a fraud and this or that yeah. party is going to contest it. Uh, they're prepping so many things ahead of time, and I think this is one aspect of it. And, again, I would not put it past them to try and stage something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a kind of inter interplanetary false flag op, because these people are desperate to have their global government. And really, at this stage, climate change hasn't worked out for them. Yeah, uh, you know this global pandemic. When you run the numbers, certainly isn't anywhere close to a pandemic. Yeah, right. And and you know they need something to to stampede people in into this this globalist dream that they've had for you know at least a couple of centuries. So um, who knows? That may work, but at this point. I, again, I think there's too many people, Daniel, that have this epistemological problem with what they see. So they're going to they're gonna have to resort to a concerted media campaign. And, you know, my other problem is considering the sources, you know, uh, most of the mainstream media has, has revealed itself as terribly partisan and with an agenda. So who's going to trust them? you know, if they come out and talk about all of this stuff. Right. And the other thing that is, is weird to me, Daniel, and this is why I think there's a bit of narrative preparation, is that conference or that interview, whatever you want to, weird thing that, that uh, Trump's son did with his father. Oh, yeah. And, you know, his son came right out and asked him, well, what do you know about ETs or Roswell or something? I don't remember what the exact question was, but it was right there in the interview. Yeah. And Trump's response was, well, I know a lot of things about it, but I can't talk about it. Yeah. And, okay, well, what do you know? You know, and where is it coming from? Mm -hmm. Is this part of your UFO briefing that you get, you know, from the intelligence services? Or is this coming via your uncle and the original swamp creature, Roy Cohn, you right. know? <laughs> so, and if it's, if anyone even it's suspects... It's probably the latter. I, I am thinking, yeah, I'm thinking, yeah. yeah, it's probably all of that association that he had with Nixon and, and Roy Cohn and, you know, that whole, that whole ilk. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, in Cone's case, Cone would have been in the perfect position, going back to the McCarthy books, Cone would have been in the perfect position to know exactly what was in those transcripts because he was there right. in those Monmouth hearings. And he was the one, besides McCarthy, that did most of the heavy questioning right. in those hearings. And if anyone would be in a position to tell Donald Trump there's a heck of a lot more going on than meets the eye, it would be Roy Cone. <laughs> So, you know, Trump lets this out, and again, you know, is is he sending messages 
that he knows something and he does he's sending a message that to the to the uh, ET threat people don't go there mm -hmm. because I can blow it out of the water or you right. know what's what's the message he's sending but he is sending a message yeah. you know that that question to occur in that interview had to you know had to have been planned it was not accidental all right they're not going to do anything spontaneous about it no 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 not <laughs> at all not at all and and i'll tell you what makes me think it was planned is the very fact that it's his son doing the interview right they wanted to make sure to get that on the record yes so we're not trusting bill o'reilly or sean hannity or anybody else it's his son yeah yeah, yeah exactly and this really goes in with a lot of the things that we've talked about about Trump's uncle, because yeah. John Trump, being at MIT, he had Vannevar Bush as his right. mentor. Vannevar right. Bush ran the UFO file. I mean, oh, he, absolutely, yeah. Well, Vannevar Bush ran every. You know, he was yes. he was the Hans Kammler of American black projects. I mean, <laughs> yes. he had his fingers into every little black project that was going on during the Second World War, and I'm quite convinced for for a long period of time afterward. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, Trump has Trump has some interesting independent sources right. that no other president coming in to office really had, with maybe the exception of, of John Kennedy, you know, with that whole Kennedy-McCarthy uh, connection. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, it's interesting that these are the two presidents that had that kind of independent ability to to vet what the government agencies may have been telling them. Right. So you know, I'm I'm intensely suspicious at this point of of this whole UFO narrative that's coming out. No question, uh, everyone. You're watching the Dark Journalist Show. We're here in X Series 93 with Dr. Joseph Farrell. He's got a new book. Out. It is called the Tower of Babel moment, and this is fascinating stuff. Uh, Joseph, I've been going through two books. One of the books that's interesting, you just mentioned Kamler. Uh, there's a book that came out uh, called The Hidden Nazi, mm -hmm. which is about Kamler mm -hmm. and had some details in there. Mm -hmm. but what I found so fascinating in looking at it, and it, it has come out in the last year or so, mm -hmm. the work that you've tracked about Kamler, really, it mirrors a lot of that. And mm -hmm. you've, been, you've been doing this over a decade. But um, one of the things that's so fascinating to me is a Kamler who was in charge of these kind of exotic projects would have been in charge of the Bell Project mm -hmm. yes. in Nazi Germany, as you pointed out. Um, in that book, they talk about as the war fortunes turn against Hitler, Kamler more and more has to try to either ship this stuff out mm -hmm. to save it or mm -hmm. pretend that he's destroying it, mm -hmm. whatever it happens to be. And it is in that sort of mire web of history that the bell disappears into. Mm -hmm. um, so for people who don't know, can you tell them what the bell is and what might have happened to it? Well, the bell is allegedly a super secret project in Nazi Germany. It was first uh, thoroughly researched by a Polish researcher by the name of Igor Witkowski. And all researchers, myself included, Nick Cook, uh, anybody who's talked about the bell is at some point reliant on Igor Vitkovsky. Uh, Igor's book was called The Truth About the Wunderwaffe. It's a good book if you can find it. 
Uh, there is a Polish edition, uh, but the English edition is very hard to come by. Fortunately, I was able to get a copy years and years ago. But uh, the Bell Project, the way I've attempted to to reconstruct it based on Igor's research and some additional material that I've outlined in the book, was, to my mind, Nazi Germany's attempt to find an energy source or physics that would allow them to do three things. The first would be so-called free energy or zero-point energy. The second would be uh, for the purposes of, of anti-gravity, which allegedly the Bell demonstrated some of those properties by levitating when it was mm -hmm. in operation. But that's all it did. It just levitated. It didn't buzz around like UFOs or anything like that. Right. Uh, because it had to be cabled to the ground for, for uh, immense electrical power, so it wasn't it wasn't a uh, it wasn't a functioning or deployable or operable device for, in a military sense. But the, I do think the third thing that they were wanting was that if you can if you can find an energy source of that nature then if you weaponize it, and I've said this many times, if you weaponize that energy source, you've got something that would make a hydrogen bomb look like a firecracker. So, you know, this, this, these are the three aims, I think, of the Bell Project. Um, there are people that dispute it, uh, but I do think that Igor laid out such a, a detailed case that it's possible to go into that case and look at the details that he lays out and kind of reverse engineer the the physical physics concepts that the Germans were thinking of when when they deployed this device. So once you do that, then you can go out and look for confirmations in the scientific literature of the period. And I think it's very clear that this this is what they were up to. That's the case I've tried to lay out in several books. Do you think that the bell uh, represents torsion physics? Yeah. 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 Because it was the, the the device that Igor describes is is a typical plasma trap, but with the significant exception, a plasma trap is is basically a, a, an electromagnetic device that creates a plasma and like a tokamak fusion reactor that holds the plasma in in an intense electromagnetic field. But what the Nazis did was they started rotating that field and even even set it up with mechanical rotation of the plasma inducing fuel in the structure and then they were pulsing it in my opinion uh, with gobs of, of uh, direct current electricity and the reason I say that is one significant little detail that Igor mentions that the Germans nicknamed the bell Der Bienenstock, the beehive so it made a, it made a harsh buzzing sound when it was in operation. And to me, that's a signature of the sound of an electromagnetic switch being opened and closed extremely fast so that it can pulse with all that direct current electricity. So uh, it's little details like that and trying to reverse engineer them that I, that I get up to in my books that talk about the bell. And the, the case that I make is circumstantial. People have to understand that. But it's a very, very detailed circumstantial case that, to my mind, when you add it all up, it's very clear that the Nazis were up to something on that on that line. 
And to add to that story, you know, I, I talk about uh, Dr. Ronald Richter down in Argentina doing his very weird right. <laughs> fusion experiments yeah. where, where he talks about, you know, rotating the plasma, pulsing it with, with gobs of electricity, which I'm assuming were direct currency electricity and so on. So right. in other words, I think there was a yeah. continuation of that project absolutely. in Argentina. Right, absolutely. Where did he get that knowledge? Right. It's interesting, too, because um, on the record, the bell disappears. Right. You pointed out that we didn't know about it in society until 1990 um, when the two Germanys Right. And we had right. one, uh, you know, that whole thing happen. Now that's pretty significant because it's a big missing chapter. Oh, huge. Yeah, for 45 some odd years. Right. Um, right. So it's, it's overwhelming that something happened to the bell. You know, the idea that they would have destroyed it, backtracking through Commodore stuff doesn't make sense. It seems like they no. got it out of there. Yeah, I think they got it out of there. But even, even if they did destroy it, when you, when, when you look at, at Ronald Richter's work in Argentina, which is just very weird, uh, it's very clear that the same concepts are involved in what he was up to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they may have shipped the bell someplace else and decided to have several different centers researching it. It may have been destroyed. I don't know. I personally think that they got the dang thing out of there mm -hmm. because it wasn't that big of a device. It was perfectly capable of being put in one of those large long-range uh, transport aircraft that the Germans had at the time. So um, Kammler, I do think, yes, is is uh, a crucial figure here. But, you know, you, you mentioned the German reunification. This is the other thing that people have to get their wrap their heads around. Virtually everything that is now being talked about with the Nazi secret weapons programs from A-bombs to death rays to the bell, you know, all of this exotic weird stuff that they were doing. Most of that has come out since the German reunification, including that very significant document that it looks, the Zinser affidavit, that it looks very definitely like there was some sort of German A-bomb test in October of 1944. Mm -hmm. That was not declassified until 1992 by the Clinton administration. And it's, you know, I read that thing and I thought, oh, my God, you know, what he's describing is is the effect of a nuclear blast. And he's describing it before the details of, of a nuclear blast are publicly well known. Mm. And that's, you know, that's that's the fly in the ointment. Mm -hmm. um, so there's all sorts of stuff. And, and the German reunification is basically what's kicked all of this loose. It, you know, Igor Witkowski was able to go in and examine the Polish war crimes trials records and find this affidavit describing the bell. Um, and again, people have to understand, we do not have access to that transcript. Wow. But it's the details that Witkowski recounts that are the crucial thing. So you can go and look at these details and reconstruct or kind of reverse engineer what they were up to. That's the argument that I was making in my books. People have to understand that. Right. Well, uh, your the details you've laid out about the bell in your books, it, it really, you know, gets us down that road because we know there's missing technology oh, yeah. uh, from the Nazi period. And we also know that they were operating on a very 
advanced level. You've pointed out oh, yeah. that they basically had cell phones and television and all kinds of things that we didn't get till much later. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the Berlin Olympics was um, televised inside of that? Nazi Germany. That's 1936. Wow, incredible. On television, you know, turn yeah. on your television and there's <laughs> Dolph at in the box in the Olympics, you know, that that's literally what was going on. And, you know, they Nazi Germany did have uh, broadcast type theaters with television sets in them all mm -hmm. over Berlin. You could go watch the news. Wow. You know, they were expensive equipment at the time, but you could actually go to these television theaters and watch the news. You know, imagine turning it on. There's Dolph, you know, giving you the daily news. Um, <laughs> and, and that technology, incidentally, came from America, Philo Farnsworth. Right. You know, who developed television. He sold a lot of his patents to the Nazis, went over to Germany and helped them develop all of this stuff. And then during the war, the, the Germans were able, successful, in miniaturizing a television camera into something about the size of a shoebox. Wow. Yeah. Now, stop and think about that. Uh, that means they were very advanced in, in vacuum tubes, how to miniaturize them. I, I believe that they had primitive silicon chips, very primitive, but nevertheless that they were working on something very close to a semiconductor. Uh, so, yeah, there's this explosion of technology inside of Nazi Germany, and I think that it's largely because they were willing to think entirely outside the box. And, you know, Kamler, that was his specialty. Um, that's what he set up his think tank to do. It was a DARPA. It was a DARPA. He's another Nazi who has multiple death stories. Oh, yeah. Just like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Four, count them, four different deaths. Wow. You know, um, which makes me think that, again, they're putting out such obfuscated confusion you know they did that with hitler's death they did that with martin borman's death right. and here's hans and they did it with gestapo miller and right. they did it with hans kamler so in other words the way i'm looking at it you're looking at a huge disinformation operation to create such confusion in the narrative that these people are able to get out and escape exactly and i i think that's exactly what happened to kamler and the target for where they're going Argentina. Well, in in that new book that you referred to that came out about Kamler, they're arguing that he came to this country. Yes. Uh, and he may have, you know, I, that's what Igor Vitkovsky thinks. That's what Nick Cook thinks. I think that he probably went to Argentina because when you examine, and this is the problem in, in historiography of this period, most people are concentrating on the United States and they're forgetting all about Argentina. Yeah. And the Argentines are very clear, you know, the, there are Argentines that Jeffrey um, Cook, I think is his name, talks about that saw a Junkers 390, which is an enormous <laughs> aircraft, even by today's standards, landing in Argentina. So, you know, yeah, my thinking is, yeah, he probably, he, he was probably doing the Kamler thing. He was probably playing all sides against the middle. He may have had contact with the Americans, probably had contact with uh, the Argentines. You know, this, this was another piece of work. And, you know, I think, I think you can make a case for both places. Well, it's interesting. Uh, and I'll, I'll mention the book that we're talking about by Reuter here, Dean Reuter.
mm -hmm. uh, along with Calm Lowry and Keith Jester. It's the Hidden Nazi is this right. book we're referencing. It's so interesting to me how much, as I was reading this book, I was thinking about your books because uh, for some reason when I was reading this, all these details started to come out and I was like, you know, this really is bringing me back to a couple of books that you wrote. But one of the things that's in here that I think is fascinating since they think you came to America is that in the case of Von Braun and Dornberger, we know mm -hmm. that they did. And right. what they're saying in here is that they made a deal with GE sometime around December 44 to come here, even before the war was lost. Mm -hmm. so, and what, what's the company involved in the construction of the bell? It's Germany's General Electric, Allgemeine Elektricitätsgemeinschaft. Uh, so yeah, uh, so you know, there's another little, there's another little dot yes. that connects all of this. So yeah, uh, I think you're. I think at least as far as America is concerned, when you're when you're dealing with Operation Paperclip, what you're doing is you're setting up the infrastructure for a vast post-war secret projects uh, type of research. Mm -hmm. And that's why they're so hot to get their hands on all these people and, and bring them to this country, or at least tie them to this country somehow. Right. And we understand about Operation Paperclip, but there's more that we don't know anything about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the, the, problem, the problem with Paperclip, particularly when you deal with people like Kurt Davis, uh, what most people don't realize, and I, again, I find this more than coincidental, is that after the Roswell incident, and you look at the Magic 12 documents, and supposedly they bring in a bunch of these Nazis to look at the Roswell wreckage. Supposedly. I mean, that's what, that's what the Magic 12 documents say. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm inclined, I'm inclined to think that, that that probably happened, because who else are you going to turn to that yeah. would have any sort of expertise in advanced aerodynes? It was after that incident that Kurt Davis, one of these Nazis brought over under paperclip, was charged again by somebody in U.S. Army counterintelligence, and they reopened his security file, the U.S. Army did, to re-vet him because they had learned that Davis had denounced a fellow worker to the Gestapo in 1942. Now, Davis, in case people don't know who he is, Kurt Davis is one of these people that hovers between the Bell Project inside of Nazi Germany and, and what I call the Public Secret Weapons Project, which are the rockets. Okay, right. He's involved in both. So he's part of Von Braun's team. And it's Davis that developed the test measuring equipment for Von Braun at Peenemann and the rockets. The key thing here is that Davis is not a rocket scientist. He's a plasma scientist. Ah. And he's involved intimately with the AEG company in Germany with the Bell Project. And I think because of that, you know, going on to my speculation that the Apollo program struck some sort of deal with the Nazis to get their hands on some of that technology to get us to the moon and back. Davis ends up as the senior flight administrator for Project Apollo at Cape Canaveral. So in other words, you have a plasma physicist, yeah, not a rocket scientist, a plasma physicist running 
the day-to-day operation of Project Apollo. A Nazi. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's cast against type, if I ever heard it. Uh, Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, precisely. I think um, it's interesting. I have a shot here just to bring that home. That's interesting to me, too, because Davis and Von Braun become the public face of that launch. But Davis is the one who is out of place there. Davis is entirely out of place. And incidentally... He ends up, by the end of his career, just before he retires from NASA, he ends up in charge of NASA's UFO files. Right. Davis, a Nazi, <laughs> in, in charge of this country's you know, NASA agency UFO files. And then when he finally retires from NASA, guess where you find him? You right. find him on the board of OTRAG. OTRAG, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> O-T-R-R-A-G. Mm-hmm. Wow. Orb- Orbital Transport Raketen Aktionsgesellschaft is what it stands for in German. Otrag. And where where were these guys? <laughs> well, listen, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't really know a thing about Otrag unless, uh, thank you, uh, big thank you to Mikhail Gorbachev. Right. Because Gorbachev is the one, just you know, as the Soviet Union's in its death throes, that that. Made this whole yeah yeah Gorbachev brought it out. He's the guy that brought everybody's attention. That hey, by the way, did you know that West Germany has its own Area Fifty One in the Congo? (laughs) (laughs) And they're up to all sorts of nasty stuff, including viruses, biological warfare, cruise missiles. (laughs) And he just lays it all out there. (laughs) And found a picture of uh, one of the. What are they launching? Oh, yeah, uh, what is that? It doesn't look. <laughs> it doesn't look like any sort of rocket I've ever seen. It looks like an Egyptian monument or something. Yeah, yeah, it looks like an. Yeah. If you yeah. look at the top here, actually, it's interesting because they have the OTRAG right on the top there. Mm-hmm. Um, who's involved in OTRAG? Okay, OTRAG was a private company set up in in West Germany in the eighties to develop cheap, reusable, note the word, reusable, and where's Elon Musk from? Reusable (laughs) rocket technology to launch satellites cheaply. Right. Okay, that's the public story. And Gorbachev comes along and blows the lid off of all of it because what he's saying is that OTRAG was the way that the United States was transferring advanced technologies secretly to West Germany, cruise missile technology, and then we get the biowarfare. Who knows where that's coming from? Yeah. But there was this preserve inside of the Congo of about 250,000, I believe I've seen one report, square miles. In you know, this that's is huge. this is huge, you know, inside of inside of the Congo, which was Otrog's private preserve. It was it was the West German Area 51. And, you know, this is typical German behavior. You know, if they want to get their hands on a technology or uh, experiment or do research in a technology that by treaty they are prohibited from doing on German soil. 
Right. So, you know, the Germans, they ship it all to Africa or just across the border into Holland. You know, (laughs) this is the way they've gotten around it. You know, they've been up to this stuff since the ink was drying on the Treaty of Versailles. You know, we'll ship out all of our secret research to the Soviet Union or wherever, Mm -hmm. and we'll do it that way. (laughs) Right, right. So you know it's typical. It's 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 typical of the German pattern of of dealing with treaty obligations. They just ship it overseas, and they privatize it. So Otrog, you know, as far as I know, was in existence from about 1983 up until uh, 1991, sometime in there, uh, mm-hmm. and then it was officially shut down. I have my suspicions. Like I say, where is Elon Musk getting all of his technology from? Right. How did that just start up? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And he's and he is German. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I hate to point that out. You know, I'm not trying to pick on the Germans here, but it's just another little factoid to to factor in. But are you telling it like it is? Well, uh-huh. this is interesting because we don't really understand the roots of SpaceX. No, we really don't. We really don't. And I, I think you're looking at Otrog 2.0. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And uh, the mystery around this company, it's so very interesting to me when you look at it because um, you can get away with a lot in Africa. Right. There's not a lot of oversight. I mean, there's probably more no. oversight in the desert in Nevada than yep. there is in the middle of the Congo in Africa. Yeah. Uh, yep. So if you're going to test out, if you've kept Bell-type technology, that's a pretty good place to test it. Oh, yeah. You could do it in Africa. You can do it in the boonies of Argentina. Uh, there's all sorts of places you could do it. Um, you know, I've I've tried to get people to understand that this this Nazi international thing that I've been talking about is not a bunch of swastika armband wearing guys goose stepping around and celebrating Hitler's birthday. These these are the Martin Bormans. These are the guys in the business suits, mm-hmm. but they're still every bit as fascist as as they ever were. Uh, and you know. To, to Bormann's quote-unquote credit, I think that what he did uh, setting this whole thing up is he just simply took all of that uh, kooky Nazi racial ideology and just threw it right out and said, you know, we're going to get down to business here. Right. Um, and that's what I think you're looking at. So you're looking at a kind of a global consortium with a little public fronts popping up here and there uh, wow. that, have, that have, you know, yeah. like Elon Musk, have suspicious unanswered questions yeah how how did this all of a sudden come out of nowhere where did the technology come from who was involved and what are the ties of those involved you know what are their histories who are they connected with no one's talking about it and you know i haven't found any information on it It's, it's like a black box yeah and he makes a lot of very unusual comments like Uh ours uh-huh uh, there's a big Mars fascination around what they're doing. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. This is very interesting to me. Also, when I look at this and I think about all the things that are coming out around the UFO file on, uh, you know, just going through the mainstream media, and they're mm-hmm. saying, well, it's not necessarily alien, but we don't think it's Russia or China. Well, what's left? <laughs> well, not much. <laughs> Is it the French, you know? (laughs) And and listen, I'm not ruling France out because in in prior to our uh, public launch, we were talking about Thomas Townsend Brown. 
Yes. You know, the famous American physicist who was all about electrogravity. Okay. Right. That was his bag. Well, in, in, I think 1952 or three, somewhere around there, as, as he's already established a reputation for investigating electrogravitic lift and propulsion. France invited, because he was getting nowhere with the United States, France invited him over to France. Ah. To, he went. This is what most people don't uh, know about him. He actually went to France. And France created a vacuum chamber for him to do his experiments in to establish whether or not it was simply an ion wind that was creating the lift, as many people were claiming. So he performed his experiments in France for the French government and successfully demonstrated that his lift would still work in vacuum. Mm. And then at that point, President de Gaulle said, thank you very much. Back to the States you go. <laughs> <laughs> they and, got some kind of confirmation. Yeah, they got the confirmation. So there is another country you can put on your list for probably having more up its sleeve than it's letting people know. <laughs> okay. Wow. This yeah. is so fascinating because I had no idea about any of that. But today I've been reading all about the French Space Force. Uh-huh. And setting up this woman to run just that. I have the article here. I was going to read it for you. This is interesting to me because French having a space force seems a little odd. You'd think they would be back in the pack a little bit. No. Yeah. No. no. Uh, the, the European uh, launch vehicle is largely a French design. Okay. Okay. Uh, with some German involvement, obviously, but it's largely a French design. So, in other words, the European Space Agency is running its public program with French technology. And all of those launches are carried out where? In French Guiana. Mm -hmm. So, you know, France, France, like it or not, as a player, they're just, you know, they're being typically French about it and not talking very much about right. it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, uh, the the fact that you have the fact that you and I even talk about other French secret weapons research in my very first book Giza Death Star believe it or not because they were investigating just like the Nazis they were investigating any avenue to create uh, a weapons technology that was not nuclear but was uh, of st sufficient strategic value that they would be able to create a deterrent to the Warsaw Pact you know they were investigating infrasound for example, mm -hmm. and actually had created some infrasonic weapons in the 1950s, both portable and really big stuff. A uh, fellow by the French scientist by the name of Gavreau led that, uh, led that development. And this is right at the time, incidentally, that de Gaulle is starting, you know, the French nuclear program and inviting Thomas Townsend Brown to come over and run his experiments in a vacuum chamber. So, you know, the French are up to their earlobes, in this stuff. They just don't talk about it. Wow, incredible. Um, everyone, you're watching the Dark Journalist Show. You're on X-Series 93 here. This is the Deep State Space Wars that we're talking about with Dr. Joseph Farrell. Uh, we're going to be taking questions in the second half of the program, so ask them uh, and ask them all in caps. Miss Olivia's putting those together. Uh, how's it going out there? Great questions already. Yeah, fantastic. You got one? Um, well, <laughs> You want to say? Are, I'll say <laughs> right okay, now. Excellent. Uh, I have so many things to go through. So I, do, I do want. I want to throw this yes. one out. Um, and Cognizant, the initials GE 
were uh -huh. on the craft of George Adamski's famous flying saucer. Oh, which really? I thought was fascinating. Well, we know Adamski was. Uh, <laughs> this is very interesting because they allowed him into all kinds of defense installations. Mm -hmm. And uh, he came up with the whole, you know, Venusian stories landing in the California desert. And uh, they mixed it with a lot of kind of theosophy. Mm -hmm. So you get this kind of theosophical, we're here to help you thing. And mm -hmm. they look very Pleiadian, the mm -hmm. aliens that he meets. But he does seem to have at that time an awful lot of footage of something back there. And then right. later, you know, he's he's denounced as a fraud and all the rest. But he actually was laid to rest on military grounds. Um, so we have somebody who's kind of a big player in there. Yeah, I've 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 been eternally suspicious of his connections with the U.S. military mm -hmm. and the story and the stories that he was putting out. Yes. Um, he the interesting thing about. Adamski, and I talk about him in, in Saucers, Swastikas, and Psyops. I devote a whole chapter to That's him. a great book. It's, it's an overlooked book, unfortunately, but it, but it's an important book. But um, It's I've a foundational book, really. It's I a think. foundational book yeah. because, because you look at the message that Adamski is putting out, and it's like reading the book of Exodus with extraterrestrials. I have to go over the hill. You guys stay here, and I'm going to talk with my Venusian. You know, oh, that's Mount Sinai. Yeah. Uh, so he's got this message. He's got this revelation that he's been entrusted to. So that looks to me like classic psyops. Exactly the sort of thing that if you were in the national security establishment and suspecting that you might be facing, you know, a Tower of Babel moment, well, you're going to go back and you're going to examine ancient texts and so on from that point of view. So I view that as a bit of narrative prep, even even as early as Adamski. Wow. That's fascinating because um, I think Adamski, his story had the most impact in that period. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's a few other people like him. Um, <laughs> George Van Tassel and people Van like Tassel. that. Yeah, uh, he created the Integratron, mm -hmm. and he seemed totally legitimate. Mm -hmm. and he, he had worked with Howard Hughes, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so he had the background. Mm -hmm. um, these people are getting flown around in these advanced craft, and they're getting told, oh, we're, we're looking in on you. We don't want you to have a nuclear war. Mm -hmm. That's the message. Uh, but it's interesting when you look at it with Adamski because that story really becomes – this core thing. It's almost like that's what built the early UFO story. Oh yeah, absolutely. There, 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 in my opinion, there wouldn't be a, 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 a ufology community really without Adamski because, you know, if you look at his career, he had access to the talk show, radio talk shows of the day, you know, think of Long John Nabel and people like this right. or Paris Flamand, you know, all of these people that were on the radio, in the media and, and willing to talk about the subject of UFOs. And he was one of the few people that, that had that kind of access. So the message was getting put out there. And again, I think, I think the message was, was largely one of narrative preparation. So, um, I'm not surprised that he had those military connections. Uh, I'm not surprised at all. And, and I think you could even argue a case that maybe he was a front for a narrative that the military wanted, wanted to put out. But it's interesting that you mentioned that part of his narrative, and, and you're right, was, was the threat of nuclear warfare. 
Yes. Because what do you see in so much UFO activity? Well, they hover, and literally, around nuclear sites constantly well, in this country in the soviet union anybody who's anybody who's got a, a you know a nuclear pop gun these things show up and and do monitoring activity and do fun things like turn on and off flights of icbms and reprogram the targeting inside them and you know, all, all sorts all sorts of fun stuff so yeah i mean it's incredible when you think about it because they have the ability, we've seen that in the case of like Bentwaters was another one of these nuclear bases yep. where they showed up. Um, I recently did a documentary called UFO Assassins, and that has in it the story of the Pascagoula aliens. Mm -hmm. And it mm -hmm. goes into how Lytton Industries was operating a huge nuclear facility right there. Mm -hmm. And even after those guys got abducted three weeks later, there's a huge underwater UFO story that happens right there. Yep. So there they are again, checking out the nuclear facilities. Mm -hmm. Well, this brings us back to Thomas Townsend Brown, because when Brown returned from France, he published a, a research project proposal that he submitted to the U.S. government called Project Winterhaven. You can actually go online and look this thing up. And... One of the one of the project proposals or an aspect of what he was proposing with his electrogravity experiments was he was proposing something that I find very interesting. I mean, he's anticipating Colonel Bearden, Tom Bearden, by three decades. Because what he was proposing was, okay, we've got these things, they're showing up in our skies. And how how did they know to show up at this time? Mm -hmm. And he, he speculated, he kind of implies that when nuclear weapons were being tested, that they, and I hope people latch on to what I say because this is very significant that Brown was on to this. He was kind of implying that a nuclear detonation sets off longitudinal waves in the medium of space time. And that would make them by most people's thinking, superluminal, in other words, faster than the speed of light, so that if you had a means of detecting these waves, you would be able to pinpoint who out there is letting off nuclear firecrackers. That was his first proposal. And then his second one was very interesting. He said, if we can find a way to control, and I'm paraphrasing him here, a way to control these longitudinal waves in the, in the fabric of space-time. Gravity waves is essentially what he was talking about. We could have a means of communication that would be both secret, because no one would think of longitudinal waves in the medium as a means of communication. It would be both secret and practically instantaneous. And then something interesting happens. Officially, his project is rejected by the government. So then where do you find him? Well, you find him off the coast of California for a brief period on Catalina Island right. doing tests of rocks. Rocks. And then after that, he shows up at guess where? 
Lockheed Martian mm. on their staff <laughs> doing what? We don't know. <laughs> wow, incredible. Yeah. So he's moving right through the Black Project. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and he has access to something. There's a story that his daughter tells in a, a book that she was putting out about him. And she tells that uh, they demonstrated this very interesting device he created. We don't get to know everything that it does, but it seems right. to have some control over space-time. But he calls it the audio fan, which doesn't sound, you know, it seems like, oh, you know, it's audio and it's a fan. What's the big deal? Mm -hmm. And yet some very unusual things happen in relation to it. After he demonstrates it, it disappears. Mm -hmm. But a weird thing happens, which is it shows up on kind of home shopping networks as what we were talking about. Was a little cube. Yeah. That little cube that's supposedly able to air condition a room. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's, you know what I think. I think that's straight out of the, his audio fan. Yeah. I think it's straight out of that. Yeah. Whatever it was about that technology that he demonstrated, they took it out immediately. Oh, yeah. It, you know, it, it was lost to history. But they saved that little salvageable piece for marketing purposes. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, well, this is the thing. I think, I think they're letting little things out. You know, yeah. just as, just as kind of beta test to see if number one, if there's a market, and number two, if they can control it, and number three, if they notice anybody's going to start connecting dots. Right. Yeah. Is he is uh, Thomas Townsend Brown a good candidate for a scientist who learned how to rework what we had found in relation to uh, alien tech? Let me put it this way. If, and, and you know me, I'm skeptical on the whole crash and retrieval narrative because we've had so many crashes and retrievals. Like I say, pretty soon we're going to have to start crashing our stuff on ET's homeworld so they can catch back up with us. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm skeptical of it. But if there were anyone who I would want on a team examining some of that stuff, regardless of where it comes from, it would be him. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, it would be him. And I'll tell you something, one reason why. Brown, as you know, came out with a patent for a jet engine that would use ionized exhaust from a jet. The, ion, the negative ions would be propelled out the back of the jet, and then he talked about putting positive charge on the leading edge of the lift frame. Of an aircraft. So, in other words, what he's doing is he's increasing lift electromagnetically uh -huh. with this jet propulsion idea. Well, interestingly enough, the Germans came up with a very similar idea during the Second World War. You have to dig and scratch around for it before you find it, but uh -huh. it's there. And, I, you know, I don't think that the two are in communication with each other. I just think this is the sort of stuff that you think of if you're trying to think of really cool ways to get from here to there. Well, that's kind of an intermediate step. So he would be, if, if the Germans are doing things with the bell, if they're doing things with ram jets, you know, there's, there's uh, a good case to be made that the Germans broke the sound barrier during World War II, not Chuck Yeager mm -hmm. uh, a few years after it. 
Uh, and again, the guy involved with that was Walter Lippish. Where does he end up? Dayton, Ohio at Wright Patterson. <laughs> okay. Wow. So, so well, yeah. So, yeah, if you have something uh, Nazi crashing in the desert in New Mexico, as I think probably happened, and it's got a bunch of weird stuff that looks partly familiar and partly unfamiliar. Who do you bring in to look at? Well, Thomas Townsend Brown is right at the top of my list. Right. <laughs> he's, he's definitely one I'd want to bring in to have a look at that stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> this is so interesting because um, there's a whole period there where we got all kinds of different crafts in the sky in the mm -hmm. 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. There's a whole kind of like the culture is becoming aware of it. Mm -hmm. And you have tons of pictures and all the rest of it. And in the 70s and 80s, it's expanded. Mm -hmm. It seems like the type is different. And, it, it, you know, we're getting the next level of the story. What's interesting to me is now they're, they want to publicly say all that stuff is a threat. Over and over again, mm -hmm. back in the day, they used to say, whatever it is, it's not a national security threat. Mm -hmm. And that's why it sort of let them off the hook for what they needed to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. This is a change in tone. Well, there's a change in the public tone. Yeah. Um, I don't think that back in, in the post-war period, you know, through the 50s, early 60s, when you've got all of this UFO activity going on, that privately they could have come to any other conclusion that other than that this is a potential national security threat. Why? Well, one of the things I try and detail in... Uh, the first Covert Wars book series, was that you had numerous UFO reports at the time that were solid reports, you know, commercial airline pilots, military pilots, and so on, where UFOs were diving at civilian airliners and so on and forcing them to take emergency action and, you know, dive the plane or whatever. Uh, and this happens repeatedly. So in other words, that's that cannot be interpreted by the national security establishment in any other way than as a national security threat. If you're able to enter airspace with impunity and demonstrate a capability to interdict that airspace with impunity, you know, and then you have the famous Washington DC 1952 UFO flag. Right. That's that's clearly a national security issue because they're buzzing the White House, you know, <laughs> and waking <laughs> President Truman up, you know. So, and and we know what Truman's response was, shoot him down. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so 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 much for the public, they're not a threat narrative. Right, yeah. Because because Harry pretty pretty much settled that one. He was <laughs> but, ready to go. Yeah. yeah, he was ready to go, you know. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think I think that the public narrative has changed. And why is is the question? Fascinating. Uh, Eisenhower moves into the White House after Truman. Mm -hmm. He's there a solid eight years, sets up an entire national security strategy. Mm -hmm. Through the war and everything else, he's obviously aware of these things. Just oh, because yeah. They're seeing them. There's a, um, a bodyguard who comes forward years later who was there during his meeting with Churchill. Mm -hmm. He talks mm -hmm. about how both of them, this story came out only in the last five years or so. He talks about how both of them uh, discussed what to do about UFOs mm -hmm. and how to handle that and, um, you know, how to share information on it and all the rest.
Mm-hmm. So Eisenhower is kind of at a different level on the UFO thing than Truman coming in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he is. And let's not forget that Eisenhower, when he's uh, head of Shafe during World War II, he he has a team of military intelligence people gathering reports, you know, on Foo Fighters and things like this. And guess who the man is that he has in charge of that? Who? General Trudeau. Oh, right. And where's Trudeau in July of 1947? In New Mexico. <laughs> yeah, and he's, he's head of the Air Technical Intelligence Command at Wright-Patterson in Dayton, Ohio. Right. So, yeah, now this Eisenhower is- knew a lot. No question. Uh, he's getting fed that information direct. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Trudeau sponsors Corso later in life. Yes. And... Um, Corso is a strange, unusual case at the end of his life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he left out something important. Well, yeah, you know, that that Roswell book of his, I read that in the first time I read it. I've read it a few times. But the first time I read it, I was just utterly mystified. Yeah. Because Corso is clearly pushing the E.T. narrative. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But in the very same breath, oftentimes right in the same sentence, after going on about E.T., he then says something to the effect, of, and this looks an awful lot like the technology we saw the Nazis involved with. You know, okay. <laughs> you know, uh, what are you saying, Colonel? Are you saying that they got it from E.T.? Or, or you're saying it's really Nazi and E.T. is a clever story to disguise? Who knows? You know, the guy, the guy is back and forth constantly throughout that book. And I do think that, that he was uh, intentionally revealing secrets. But the question is, he revealed it in such a way that the narrative he's putting forward is so badly obfuscated that you're left in the ambiguous position of what he's really trying to say. Yes. Uh, for for my you know my two cents worth, I think what he was really trying to do was point the finger at, at all of this Nazi tech. But you know, other people read his book and come away with an entirely different uh, opinion, and it's easy to do. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's in that package. It's in that package, right? No question about it. It is a breakthrough. Oh yeah, it is of a kind, uh, and I I do feel like there's something powerful in the way he came out, and I think he was kind of roughed up. In, in a lot of ways, both mm-hmm. in the mainstream and in alternative, mm-hmm. uh, he was sort of sidelined and his story was because it was just too good to be true in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, because mm-hmm. here was the man who was coordinating so much of that. I liked one of the things he said. Um, he said that they moved the UFO technology through the foreign technology office. Right. That's interesting to me because I always look and find out, you know, I'm trying to see how they move it through the various government agencies. That's a good target. Well, the, it's a good target, especially if you're coming out with a narrative that it's, is it E.T. or is it Nazi? You know, right. take your pick. Yeah. Uh, because you can you can take all that Nazi tech and move it through the foreign tech office. Right. Uh, and his other thing that he says that I find is is an aspect of his story that to me rings absolutely true. Because he says that what they did was that through that office, they were salting this technology into various American corporations for development. So in other words, they were privatizing it. 
Right. And that's a perfect way to keep things absolutely secret because if it's corporate proprietary information, not even the government really knows exactly what they're all up to. So in other words, Corso is is kind of telling us the same thing that you encounter in some of the Magic 12 documents where they indicate that Nixon took the decision to turn all of this over to the defense corporations. Right. Essentially privatize the whole UFO file. And I have no difficulty thinking that that's the case because once it's in the hands of a Raytheon or a Lockheed Martin and they're getting all of this money, they'll do anything they want with it. No question. No question. And there's no trail anymore. And there's no trail. Exactly. Yeah. There's no trail. Uh, and now these very same people coming out through Lockheed and the CIA, they want to be the ones who come back out and say, we're going to brief Congress on a UFO threat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which means they can make it anything they want. I mean, yeah, that's exactly. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If it's proprietary, they get to create the narrative. <laughs> <laughs> there's no breadcrumb trail. Everyone there's no breadcrumb trail. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're watching the Dark Journalist Trail. Uh, we're here. This is X Series 93. We're going to be taking your questions shortly. We're getting deep into the UFO file here. Uh, this is Deep State Space Force, and we've been seeing a lot of that. We haven't talked about the Space Force so, so much, Joseph. Uh, right. This is a crucial piece. It is. Uh, Trump and the Space Force, he's announced the sixth branch as of December of last year of the military, and the Space Force is real now. Mm -hmm. uh, other countries will follow suit and all the rest. Um, space as a warfighting domain opens it up to a lot of different things, uh -huh. uh, but it also cuts him in on a piece of the pie of what he knows is going on in relation to the UFO file and space. And that's where you see the weirdness with him coming out and talking to his son and reflecting that knowledge. Um, what is the Space Force about? Well, the way I look at it, Daniel, it's, it's a public disclosure of something that's probably been there for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I go back to Gary McKinnon and his hack of, of the Department of Defense and what he claimed he saw which was he saw a list of ships in a space fleet with captains and crew names. Okay. Now, that sounds like a ridiculous story, except for Ronald Reagan. Uh -huh. Because if you read Reagan's memoirs, there's a little passage in them that he was shocked to find, and how this got through the censors, I don't know, unless they wanted it to get out, you know. So take your pick. Is this real? Is it Memorex? Is it disinformation? But nevertheless, Reagan in his memoir says that when he was briefed on American space capability, and this is the 1980s, okay, he was told that we had a space deployment capability of about 300 personnel. Now, stop and think what he just told you. He just told you that you can take all of our space shuttle fleet at the time, including the space shuttles that hadn't even been built yet, and it does not total to 300 people. Right. It totals to a fraction of that. Oh, yeah. We've only had 12 yeah. men walk on the moon. Yeah, exactly. 
So in other words, Reagan, if you take him at his word, and I tend to do so, he's just told you that there's a space capability vastly over what the public knows about. Mm. Mm. So I'm thinking there's your space force. Yeah. Okay. The other thing about Trump is, if you recall, he made that speech after we had, I forget the general's name, it may have been Millie, I don't remember, at uh, the Air Force Academy, where he says, you know, you're going to have to be prepared to fight little green men. And that was the phrase he used. <laughs> okay. And, of course, there was an internet storm over his remarks, and the, the naysayers were out in force saying, well, that's just army code for how we refer to Russians in their camouflage gear. Oh. That was the explanation. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. <sighs> wait a minute. A general, three or four star general, is not going to be so careless with words as to use a code in a public speech that means one thing to the military and is going to be taken another way by the public. Right. He knows exactly what he's saying. And he's saying something that is ambiguous in the way it can be interpreted, and he's doing so deliberately. This is yeah. a general. Okay? Yeah. Um, so I think that was a little clue. So anyway, that we had that speech, and Trump goes out to California and gives his speech, and he says, it's high time that we have another Space Force. And I'm, I'm thinking, whoa, whoa Don, <laughs> another? You mean we already have one? <laughs> <laughs> that, that we don't know about. And, and now we need another, the first one. Yeah, and now we need another one. <laughs> so, you know, the way I look at it is that you have a typical pattern here, and you see it in Nazi Germany. You know, Hitler, and I, I mentioned this in the books, Hitler in 1944 decides with a formal declaration that they're going to go ahead and produce V2 rockets. Okay? Now, what he's telling you is, is we've been developing these things for the last 10 years that anybody that does the research knows that. So what is Hitler really saying? He's saying that they have come to the point now where they're ready for operational deployment. That's what he's saying. Right. So the pattern has always been that you make something public after you get the technology developed to deploy something operationally. That's what's going on. Yeah. So when Trump says, oh, we need another Space Force, what I think he's saying is we've got the technology developed sufficiently now that we can go ahead and just admit the fact and make it public. That's what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you, if you look at what the Space Force has put out since that announcement, it's putting out all sorts of fluff about command and control procedures and training and so on and so forth. Yes. You know, and I'm thinking, oh, come on, guys. <laughs> you're, you're saying this explains the missing 21 trillion? I'm sorry. No, it, it, doesn't, take, it doesn't take 21 trillion dollars to make a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, it, it's it's more fun and games. But, yeah, that's what I think happened there. Well, it's fascinating. Uh, there's a story that came out on the Space Force. This is from yesterday. 
Space Force on alert behind Russia's mysterious testing of deadly anti-satellite weapons in orbit. They already have the Space Force in a like a tactical fighting position, mm -hmm. and the, it's already like you know we're going to get our Gulf of Tonkin incident in space, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So uh, what they have here is last week the head of the U.S. newest military branch, the Space Force, cautioned publicly for the first time that Moscow had undertaken at least two concerning anti-satellite weapons tests in recent months in a potential bid to develop an orbit efficiency that could dangerously hinder the U.S.'s heavy dependence on space-based systems. Mm -hmm. Are they setting up, you know, their own kind of false flag there? Um, I think they could be. Yeah. Because, let's be honest, the idea that Russia and China don't want uh, weaponized space systems it's not because they're not developing them themselves. They clearly have been. Yeah. It's 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 a way to to stop the US economic preponderance from achieving a a uh, superiority in that platform. That's all it is. All right. And in the meantime they're going to continue to to develop their own. Um so could they be setting it up for some sort of false flag incident? Sure. Sure. And, you know, just as an aside here, if, if you've got that floating around, do you really want to move to digital currency and have everything in the cloud? Definitely not. Definitely not. You know, yeah. I mean, That's they're, putting they're out, driving over a cliff with that. Yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> it's suicidal, quite frankly. And, you know, this is the problem with, the, with these people. They've got to get their narrative, you know, to at least make some sort of consistent rather than contradictory sense. Uh, but but Russia doing this um, along with at the same time developing their own independent internal clearing capability, jumping on board with the Japanese, that's a story that people forget for some international clearing, um, that to me is telling me that they are developing a very hard and redundant space interdiction capability. Mm. And let's remember the other aspect of this, Daniel. The Chinese and the Russians both have test, successfully tested ground-to-space anti-satellite systems. So, you know, they may have an advantage on us in some of those areas, but um, the fact of the matter is space is going to be weaponized. You can have all the best intentions in the world, but the fact of the matter is pure geopolitics is going to necessitate it. And anybody with any sort of space capability from Europe to India to Japan, China, they're going to do this, like it or not, because they have to. Right. They have to. Right. Well, it's interesting because the, the roots of the space program were all about making sure it was all about research and science. And Kennedy saying, when we go out there, there's not going to be any war out there. <laughs> and we signed on to treaties about that. But over uh -huh. time, there's just, you know, everybody's getting into that military footing. Yeah, it's easy to say when you're one of two spacefaring powers on the surface of the planet. Right. It's a lot more difficult when you throw in India and China and Japan and Brazil and Europe, you know, everybody's going to be doing this. And again, I suspect that you could have some sort of false flag incident. The question is, the real question is, what's the narrative going to be that accompanies it? Right. 
let's remember something very significant. A month before the Chelyabinsk meteor incident, then Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev in Russia went on Russian television and said, well, we need to develop an asteroid defense capability and we need you know, to do this in concert with our international partners. But, he went on to say, if no one's willing to go along with us and do this, we're just going to have to do it ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there you have it. So yeah. even, even that narrative of some sort of extraterrestrial threat, this time from asteroids, is there. Well, we know Carol Rosen's affidavit. We're in the asteroid stage, and the final one is E.T. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, they, they're prepping these narratives all over the place. And, you know, the other thing, the other thing is, I don't know if you've been watching, but during this whole coronavirus fracas that's been going on, there have been these articles from NASA on fizz.org and so on and so forth. Oh, this asteroid is going to be passing real close to planet Earth. You know, these asteroid stories keep coming out. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, first of all, it's the land of the fireballs. Yep. <laughs> Everywhere yep. you turn now, there's a fireball video or story. And now these other ones, are, they're going real close, you know, like, hey, that thing was as big as a moon, but don't worry about it. <laughs> it went by, even though yeah. Since when? Yeah. Well, here's the problem. How are you going, you know, if, if you're having these big rocks flying by, how are you going to destroy them? Yeah. What they're really saying is we need to put some pretty powerful weapons up there right. to get rid of these dang things, or at least nudge them aside. Yes. Well, um, <laughs> as far as Dmitry, he was actually asked during that interview by some Russian reporter in the audience, well, how are we going to you know, defend against asteroids. Well, his comment was, oh, we've got, you know, we've got our thermonuclear missiles. We can blow them out of the sky, nudge them aside with a hydrogen bomb. And then he went on to say something that I thought was really interesting. And we have other ways, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you do? <laughs> what might those be, Dimitri? Right. <laughs> you know? What'd you have in mind? Yeah, what'd you have in mind there? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you know, wow. and and then then we get President Trump uh, a few weeks ago on one of his tweets, you know, which are entertaining if nothing else, saying, "Well, yeah, we've got atomic weapons, we've got nuclear weapons, but we don't need those." <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we don't. Well, what else do we have? <laughs> you know? Well, so, so yeah, bring me back to. Um the uh, Reagan-Gorbachev conversation. No one's ever explained this either. It's There's two weird conversations that they have. Let's be kind. The first one is they come out of a press conference, you know, out of a meeting, and they say, you know, we're going to, we're talking about zero, you know, bringing the nuclear weapons down to zero. Nothing. <laughs> How do you do that exactly? Well, uh, that's yeah. How do you do that? Um, all right, that's, that's 1987. Okay. Yeah. Uh, nuclear weapons we got them in 45. That's 42 years later. You're just gonna go to zero? Yeah. It's really a strange thing that they did. It, it's it's very strange. But the first thing it tells me is that you know 
Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev are number one, not stupid people, and number two, they're geopolitical realists. Yeah, I mean, Gorbachev especially. And <laughs> <laughs> for any for either one of them to have talked seriously about that, that to me is an admission that they've got much more sophisticated stuff capable of of wreaking strategic level destruction on yeah. a nuclear scale without all the nasty stuff that goes with nuclear weapons like fallout and things like that. Right. So yeah, you know, and and it's it's clear from what both the Soviet Union and the United States have been publishing in their, you know, uh literature about defense systems, they were both talking about kinetic weapons. You know, the Russian anti-satellite killers are thought to be purely kinetic weapons. Um, which are not that difficult to to come up with. The United States has been talking about you know tungsten rods of God since right. since Reagan's Star Wars program, and uh, you know that would that would be nuclear scale destruction without the fallout. Wow. Uh, so there's no doubt in my mind that that again the development of the actual system precedes any public discussion of it. <clears throat> that it's the pattern all over again. Wow. It's incredible because that means that they were already outdated. Yeah. Nuclear. Yeah. PBMs and all the rest in 87. Yeah. And, you know, here we are 30 years later. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they've gone way beyond it, but we still talk about, Hey, let's update our nuclear programs. Yeah. I, and again, Daniel, <clears throat> I'm suspicious of that narrative. Because given the way that, that at least the government in this country operates, particularly now with, with FASB 56 budgeting regulations in effect, you could take any amount of money and say, oh, we're going to build X number of hydrogen bombs with this and really sock it to the Chinese if they ever you know give us any problems. You can take all that money and put it into Rod of God satellites, probably for a lot less money than the hydro equivalent number of hydrogen bombs. And you're going to you're going to reap a much secure and more operable weapon system than a hydrogen bomb, because again, you know, a hydrogen bomb you're going to have fallout, like it or not. Uh, a rod of God, no. You can take out that chemical plant in Changjing, China, and leave a big crater in the ground which is suspiciously deep, I might add, right. <laughs> and, and, and not have any of that nasty fallout as, as residue. So do I think these, these countries have that sort of stuff? Yes. Am I suspicious of what they might be telling us publicly that the money's going for as opposed to what it's really going for? Yes. Absolutely, I am. Wow. It's like you say, why do you need a hydrogen bomb? Yeah. That's, that's a... That's a monstrously difficult piece of equipment to engineer. Right. A rod of God, comparatively, is not near as difficult to engineer. It's expensive, but it's not as difficult. Right. So would they, you know, just from the standpoint of efficiency of, of spending per dollar or ruble? Yeah, they would. This they is would. incredible. Uh, the zero-point option back then and you know the, the rod of god thing sounds like that fire from the sky i mean that's mm -hmm. it's kind of where they're going it fits more with their global control grid in a way because they're going to be oh, yeah. everything from space yeah and coincidentally a rod of god would be the perfect sort of kinetic weapon to do what 
take out an asteroid or a saucer. Right. Because it is a kinetic weapon. So yeah, you you have you have a system there that to my thinking would be an operational system that could do double duty. Mm. Whereas, you know, pointing and aiming an ICBM at an asteroid is a little bit more difficult. And it's a lot slower. All right. Yeah, right. Uh, Joseph, in this book, this is a fantastic book you did, Covert Wars and the Clash of Civilizations. Mm -hmm. This book, because of all the announcements that have been going on, etc., somehow this book seems more timely as if you were looking in a crystal ball at the time. Um, but what's fascinating about this book is you talk about Bissell in this period, in the JFK mm -hmm. period, mm -hmm. and they're developing satellites, and they're capable of doing double duty, but it's a very mm -hmm. interesting thing they're set up for. Mm -hmm. Which is, give me a reminder of what you're getting at. They're looking simultaneously at the Soviet Union, but then out into space. Yes, yes. Okay, so yes. They, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think there's an aspect to the spy satellite story that clearly implicates that they were trying to create a platform that could do double reconnaissance duty. Right. Because those satellites were designed, especially the early ones, to have two camera systems, one for the broad picture to find out what they needed to zero in on. And then, you know, the more precisely focused satellite cameras. So I'm thinking, okay, that would be the perfect thing if you were trying to look at a region of space and monitor activity, if any, there. And then if you saw anything, you could zero in on it. Right. So in other words, I'm assuming, and this is this is something that did not occur in any of the spy satellite literature that I read, <clears throat> but I'm assuming that that meant that those satellites had some maneuver capability in orbit in order to change direction of what they wanted to target. And I was not able to find any confirmation of that, but it stands to reason that they're not going to stick a satellite up there that doesn't yeah. have some sort of maneuvering capability. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. that limits drastically the amount of intelligence that you have. So I'm thinking, yes, the given the context that Richard Bissell is involved in so many of these covert technology programs, you know, the U-2 and, and all of that stuff, the spy satellites, he's even involved in the Bay of Pigs. Right. So, I mean, this is, this is a guy that had his hand in every aspect of the pie. And there's something else very significant about the development of spy satellites because <clears throat> Alan Dulles, who put Bissell in charge right. of that program, decided that he would fund it from the CIA, get this, from the CIA's unvouchered funds. Oh, <laughs> well, there's your black budget. There, yeah, there, yeah, bingo. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> unvouchered, that's nice. Yeah, isn't that, isn't that convenient? <laughs> so, you know, we don't know how much money they poured into it, is what yeah. he's telling you. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you take my hypothesis that there's a hidden system of finance with vast amounts of cash, and vast amounts of rehypothecation capability, mm -hmm. the sky's the limit. Right, which means they were already observing these things close up in 1961. Oh, easy. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's exactly what I'm thinking.
That's exactly what I'm thinking. It's interesting to me that no one has yet tried to confirm the hypothesis by doing FOIA requests of any spy satellite images of UFOs. Oh, right, right. Yeah, uh, hoping that they're not exempt. Hoping that they're not exempt. Right? Yeah, uh, this is interesting to me because it seems to me that they have this interrupted period and it's mm -hmm. absurd by any normal standard where you go from 1972 to mm -hmm. the present and there's no man visits to the moon. Yeah. It's absurd. Right? It's absurd. For almost 50 years. And then you're saying, talking about it, like it's going to be a great thing again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So for me, when I look at that, I say they realized well, a few things may have happened, but one of the, the key points I think is, you know, if they found anything like ruins or whatever up there, <laughs> you can't have this going on repeatedly because people are going to want to see more of it. Uh -huh. And so you need a, a whole program to kind of like get Keep rid of black. Yes. Uh -huh. uh, what do you think of that? Uh, I think it's eminently possible. And I'll tell you why. Um, Again, the Russians are the fly in the ointment because during the Soviet space program era in the Cold War, they were publishing all sorts of wild stuff by Western standards in magazines like Sputnik and so on and so forth. And one of the, th one of the things that they published was, I think it was in Sputnik, was an article about how the moon is nothing but a big spaceship. Mm-hmm. And, and they were serious about it, oh. you know, and they listed all the reasons that we know all too well. What is that big thing doing there? And how, in the name of sense, by any physics that we understand, did it get there to do what it's doing by the capture model? Right. It can't be done. Yeah, right. <laughs> it cannot be done. <laughs> You know, I, it's, I go back to Isaac Newton. The moon is the only thing that gives me a headache. You know, <laughs> that's what he said. You know, Isaac Asimov pointed the same thing out. Hmm. So, what is that up there? It's the biggest yeah. UFO, and we all see it every day that it's <laughs> visible, and we don't think anything about it. But when you stop and think about the physics of what's involved in doing what it's doing, it was parked there. <laughs> right. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> so the Soviets come out with all this stuff, and then the Soviets are the ones that discover what on the surface of the moon? The Blair Cuspids. Yes. You know about those? The Blair Cuspids are these little obelisk-like things sticking up from the surface of the moon in a nice little geometrical pattern right. that's clearly artificial. Yeah. And they come right out and say, this is clearly artificial. <laughs> <laughs> So, so the Soviets have been the ones, you know, that are the constant fly in the ointment for the NASA narrative. No, it's a, just a big ball of rock. Right. <laughs> you know? right. so, yeah. But it rings. But, but, <laughs> but, but anyway, no, I, I think it's I think it's entirely possible that they they saw stuff up there. I mean, just read Richard Hoagland's Dark Mission, if you're not convinced about that. They clearly did see something up there, and they decided to take it all black for whatever reason. Okay. Now, I don't think the reason was because it would be too upsetting to religious people that, you know, there's evidence of E.T. out there. You know, 
I'm fairly religious and it never bothered me. Yeah, right. <laughs> quite, quite frankly. And you, you write know, about it all the time. I write about it all the time. You know, it's a big deal. You know? <laughs> so, so, you know, I don't think that's the reason they give. But I think the real reason is okay, if there's stuff out there that's artificial, somebody was there and had some pretty sophisticated technology to be there and park things like the moon. <laughs> and that goes away your whole like primitive background. Oh yeah. 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 So you to, there's somebody out there is more advanced. Right. Or there was a culture here that was more advanced, whatever it is, your narrative, yeah. your human narrative is pretty blown away. Yeah, you're, the whole history of, of the history of humanity as told by quackademia is just thrown right <laughs> out, you know, thrown right out the window. And I think I think the real reason that they keep it secret is not even that. It's because they want to know how the technology worked. Right. Because if you can reduplicate or reverse engineer that technology, then you've got a leg up over everybody else on planet Earth. That's the space race. Yes. And we're in it right now. Let's get real about that. Yeah, yeah let's get to Mars in a hurry. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of stuff up there. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Everyone, you're watching the Dark Journalist Show. Uh, this is X-Series 93. We're here with Dr. Joseph Farrell. GizaDeathStar.com. Uh, Dr. Farrell's new book is The Tower of Babel Moment. Uh, you just did the second book on the McCarthy hearings, mm -hmm. and that is absolutely fascinating because we get so much early UFO information uh, in that as well. I highly recommend those books. Uh, we're going to be taking your questions in a couple minutes here. How are you doing out there? Good. Can we go into Mars right now? <laughs> what Mars? <do> <laughs> Everybody has their theory. <laughs> Are we there already? Who's there? What's there? All right, you got a real question? Uh, that's the question. Uh, well, we'll go through them one at a time. So, uh, well, let's just do the meta analysis of it. Yeah, okay, Mars. Um, Mars. This is interesting, Joseph, because um, in really the whole setup to the development of science fiction, if you go back 19th century, mm -hmm. it's really the moon and Mars. Yes. People really like H.G. Wells, mm -hmm. uh, Martians, this whole thing, 50s mm -hmm. sci-fi. What is it about Mars? Well, number one, Mars in, in esoteric lore is, is the planet or god of war. Uh, and that implies a civilization and a technology. And... I think that it's it's so present in our psyche, and I'll be quite honest and go so far as to say I believe that its presence in our psyche all over the world is because we have some sort of uh, perhaps genetic memory of catastrophic events in our solar system history that involve that planet. Um, you know, I, I'm... I make no bones about it in, in my book, The Cosmic War, that I think Mars was involved right. um, in some capacity. Um, add to that the, the Viking satellite photos of the face and the whole controversy that that touched off that's still going on about the Sidonia region on Mars. Now, I'll be honest again and say that when I look at those photos, even the more recent photos that 
supposedly disprove the face that's nothing but, you know, a mound. I'm looking at it exactly the same way that Hoagland is looking at it and seeing a very decayed uh, object, an artificial object. Right. Uh, and there are too many other oddities that are not even on Sidonia about Mars. There are clear indications of pyramidal structures that I can't see any geological explanation for that pepper the surface of the planet. There are just too many odd pictures that you can go online and look at from NASA's own photos and see all of this stuff that look like parts to automobile engines and, you know, fossilized somethings and, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> And we know that they, they make a habit of removing those things from the pictures over time. Oh, yeah, they yeah. do. They put them up, and then people start saying, oh, you know, look at there. And then they go back and airbrush yeah. this stuff out. So, yeah, there's clearly something there. So the question is, are we there? Well, if you have, let's go back to the Bell story. If you give it any credence, mm -hmm. and you've got the Nazis tinkering around with some sort of gravitic anti-gravity thing in 1944 <laughs> and, <laughs> and you pour trillions of dollars over what is it now since the end of the war eight decades mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. secret research could you develop a technology that could get us there safely and get us off of there safely well probably mm -hmm. so I have no difficulty with the idea that we're there and then add to that alternative three right. you familiar with that yes well for those of you who aren't alternative three was this british television show done on the itc network in the 70s and early 80s in great britain and it was called alternative three and it was intended to be an april fool's joke because it was supposed to air on April 1st on ITV. Documentary on their, style. On, yeah, documentary. It's, that's, it's laid out and presented as a documentary. It's a complete hoax. Yeah. But the interesting thing that happened was they were trying to explain the great brain drain from Great Britain during the 70s and 80s and investigating all these missing scientists. And they came up with these scientists were being disappeared deliberately into the secret space program. Straight and, up. <laughs> and help, yeah, and helping scientists prepare to get a segment of the human population off the planet Earth before the Earth was just in uninhabitable. Okay, and so they go to Mars. As a result of the show, this is what is really interesting to me. As a result of this documentary, ITC television in Great Britain was flooded with letters and telegraphs from people all over the Commonwealth and the United States saying that, yeah, they, they have knew somebody that disappeared in, you know, as a scientist or something that disappeared with no explanation. They don't know where they went. And yeah, they were starting to take it seriously. And then one of the guys involved in the production of the show all of a sudden starts being tailed, having his mail opened, his phone tapped, and all of this stuff. And he's thinking, okay, why is my phone and mail being tapped for a show that was a complete hoax? Right. 
So they tapped into yeah, the real thing. Yeah. yeah, I think I think that's exactly what they did. Boy. They they thought they were making something up and it hit too close <laughs> to home for somebody. Wow, incredible. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I really do think that. Alternative three, uh, I'm thinking that's about 1980. Yeah, it's about 1980s. It's right toward the end of the 70s and the brain drain and just uh, at the end of that last labor government before Mrs. Thatcher comes in. And it's 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 a one hour wild ride. I, I got to tell you, but <laughs> it is incredible, and they play it totally straight. And uh, the, yes, they do. There's not a cracked smile in the whole thing. <laughs> and interestingly enough, Daniel, yeah. in one in one of the scenes in that show, they interview this guy at the Royal Society of something or other, some professor. Remember that? Yeah. And. She, the reporter asks him, well, you know, what really is going on? And he pauses for a while and thinks, and he says, well, and I'm paraphrasing badly here. He says, well, it appeared to some of us watching the Soviet Union and the United States that there had to be a deeper level of cooperation and coordination going on than met the public eye. And I was bowled over when I heard that because I had, I had just published the SS Brotherhood of the Bell. Okay. And in the SS Brotherhood of the Bell, I point out that you can look at Soviet and American launches, particularly of lunar probes and compare the schedules of launches. The Soviets would send up a few probes, then they'd stop. And then the Americans would send up a few probes, and then we'd stop, and then the Soviets would, you know, back and forth. And you can interpret that one of two ways. As the space race, they're in the race, and they're trying to outdo each other. Or you can interpret that we do it, then you do it, as coordination and cooperation at a very high hidden level. Wow. Amazing. Now, now Here's the question. How would you synchronize that if you were cooperating? Answer, who's got the intelligence boots on the ground inside of the Soviet Union to communicate surreptitiously? Reinhardt Galen. Oh, Galen. Yeah. Well, Galen comes directly out of the Nazi hierarchy. At the end of the Bingo. war, he's running Nazi intelligence. He's running Nazi intelligence on the Eastern Front during World War II and then post-war West German intelligence. It's, it's the same network. In right. other words, it's a group of Nazis. And he's, he's the German intelligence liaison with the CIA. Now, why do I mention him? Because he's all important. How does Lee Harvey Oswald get an apartment in Minsk, Belorussia, and then marries the colonel of a, of the, the daughter of a GRU Soviet military intelligence colonel and then gets back out of the Soviet Union with her in tow with money in his pocket. Who's got the network inside the Soviet Union to do that? It's not the CIA directly. Right. Right. Wow. Galen, um, Galen's a really unusual figure. And this is, this is a shot of Galen actually. Um, mm -hmm. You pointed out his autobiography to me, and I couldn't believe it when I was reading. It. <laughs> isn't that isn't that? A... <laughs> Jesus. Uh, Is but... he a piece of work or not? <laughs> Unbelievable. 
And my my way of looking at him is he's kind of the great, um, you know, he's the Wizard of Oz back there because mm -hmm. basically the CIA is crafted directly out of his network. Yeah, I mean, we had the OSS, but um, it seems like anything to do with that area of the world, he's he's the real he's 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 the real he's the real CIA presence, and it's not CIA; it's West German. Yes. And you know it's 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 like Christopher Simpson pointed out in his book Blowback, Galen's analyses of Soviet military capabilities and intentions were the briefings and analysis for the CIA to President Truman, and it was so bad at some points that they simply took Galen's analyses that he'd passed on to the CIA, retyped them on CIA stationery, and passed them off to President Truman. So in other words, well, a Nazi general, a Nazi general is briefing the American president directly with no added comments, nothing. Truman is just reading Nazi intelligence analysis. Truman is, is Hitler, <laughs> you know, right, yeah. living, living in the White House rather than the Reich Chancellor getting these briefings, you know, but that's that's essentially what's going Taylor on. Taylor just switched employers there. He's, yeah, he's he just switched employers, you know. <laughs> Uh, that's interesting what you mentioned about the Kennedy part, though, because at that period in time, it's, so first of all, Oswald is such a strange character uh -huh. um, on, on a number of fronts, trying to get into his background. Obviously, it's laced from Atsugi and everywhere else with all kinds of intelligence work. But this, this activity is very unusual because you can't get into the Soviet Union in 1960, 1959, if you're American. And you need something very special to get you in and out of there. Mm -hmm. uh, not to mention when he went there, you know, when he was here, he didn't really have a good job or any money, but he went there. He was all set. <laughs> he was all set in a television manufacturing plant <laughs> right, yeah. in, in Minsk. Yeah. And, and, you know, the odd thing that people forget from the Warren Commission is that one of his Marine buddies overheard him not only speaking Russian, but German. Wow. Yeah. Now, what would you need German for? Yeah. Unless your handler happens to be somebody associated with General Galen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which, <laughs> which stands to reason. I um, Yeah. I, I found that Marina Oswald confirmed that about him speaking German. Mm -hmm. So definitely. It's definitely there. Yeah. Um, and let's not forget. The Hunts and the Murkisons, who are hovering big time in the background of Kennedy's assassination, Peter Dale Scott brought this out in, in his book, The Deep State. They had some sort of private intelligence network, which Professor Scott was able to trace back to General Galen. Yeah, amazing. And yeah. that's interesting, too, that the, the all-powerful oil barons, mm -hmm. you know, H.L. Hunt, who... Mm -hmm is largely around these assassinations going on in that period. He's right there in the middle uh -huh. of it. Um, and even Hughes, that they have access to this intelligence network of their own mm -hmm. with that kind of power. You know, yeah. I think in this case, the CIA invades his corporation rather than you yeah. know, him hiring them out the way Hunt did. But that's Well, let's not forget who else was connected to the Hunts and Murkison. Senator Joseph McCarthy. Right. Yeah. Right. 
Oh, what a tangled web. <laughs> <laughs> what a tangled UFO web. Well. Yes, what a tangled <laughs> UFO web. <laughs> I, I, I'm still sort of breathless over Joseph McCarthy <laughs> getting all these UFO things. <laughs> yeah, I want to put this on the record, right? The, the whole UFO field, you know, they've been sputtering around, chasing around, uh, Louis Elizondo, and they're like, you know, oh, Elizondo raised his eye in a, in a Fox News interview when they asked him a question. What does it mean? <laughs> in the meantime, right in the core of history, they have Joseph McCarthy talking about Blue Book. They're going to learn a lot more. You know, just read a book. Yeah, just read a book. <laughs> yeah, he's not only talking about Blue Book, but longitudinal radar experiments and yes. what is Monmouth doing down in New Mexico in July of 1947. Just a little date coincidence there. Um, I've got a couple of things for you and then we're going to turn it over to Miss Olivia and her mm -hmm. questions. Uh, you're watching the Dark Journalist program, everyone. We're here with Dr. Joseph Farrell. This is incredible. Deep dive into deep state space wars. Uh, a couple of headlines just to run by. This was France steps up spending for Space Force to gird for unfriendly moves, Joseph. That's a new one, unfriendly uh -huh. moves. Uh -huh. <laughs> and then uh, this brave leader, Macron, Germany is wary of his Space Force. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you blame them? <laughs> <laughs> I seem to recall a little guy by the name of Napoleon that... <laughs> Gave the Germans some pause for concern. <laughs> um, you, and it's interesting when we talk about space, we can't really talk about space without at least mentioning that there's an occult aspect mm -hmm. to all of this. Mm -hmm. And that means if we're talking about, um, you know, JPL or if we're talking about the moon landings and the numerology involved, the things that they did, the Masonic rituals when they got to the moon. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned uh, Richard Hoagland's work. He's tracked that a lot. He has a whole oh, group, yes. he says, inside of NASA called the Magicians. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that you pointed out to me, and I just wanted to touch base with you on this, was during the 9-11 attacks, there was a very unusual piece of um, occult imagery that beamed across every television set. I'm going to show the picture. I know it's disturbing, but mm -hmm. it's just the nature of getting the point across. This is one of the mm -hmm. jumpers from the tower, and he's, he's in a very unusual pose, mm -hmm. and that was shot across the world. Now, uh, in traditional occultism in the tarot, we mm -hmm. see that pose in the, the hang He's upside down. He's got that same unusual posturing. I went back and got a few examples of this to really make sure we knew what we were talking about. There's something about that positioning. Mm -hmm. um, and then I went back into the very early versions of uh, The Wizard of Oz and that Tin Man holding that yes. same exact positioning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, of course, in The Wizard of Oz, we've got that Theosophical background that Baum had, mm -hmm. so he's he's plugged into all this, uh, and that's just more hanged man. Uh, whether we're talking about the moon landings or JFK or 9/11, uh, in JFK, of course, you've got the tramps, and you pointed out to me there's something very unusual and masonic, ritualistic yeah. about about that. Yeah. Um, 
When you get into the space part, what are they doing? What's going on there on the occult side? Well, in a nutshell, what I if you if you uh, agree with Hoagland's analysis and other people that have looked at that, and I I do. What I think they are doing is a vast celestial ritual magic. And the reason that they're doing it, again, goes back to what I think may have happened in the national security uh, state after the war. And that is, all of a sudden, they're confronted with a UFO problem. And as they go back and examine historical texts and lore, they are doing this as a way, perhaps, to either communicate in ways that they think might have been done in occult lore, because in in a lot of that lore, you, you deal with the timing of something and you deal with the manipulation of symbols. Those are the two most important things. Right. And clearly they're doing that. They're either trying to com communicate or I suspect that some of them, the magicians are aptly named, because they are trying to manipulate or control those forces. So they may be trying to summon and manipulate. And I, I don't put it past these people to do that. Um, right. Uh, because you have, particularly with people like Jack Parsons, you mentioned JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which right. Parsons was absolutely intimately involved in setting up. Clearly, with that man, you have not only a brilliant scientist, but you have someone who's very heavily into the occult. I mean, he's connected with Aleister Crowley. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, he's performing, you know, the Babylon ritual and all of this. Right. And he's doing so in conjunction with his space efforts. So there's no doubt in my mind that, that they are trying to use space in a magical way. None whatsoever. You and look Hubbard, at, uh, Hubbard's in that. Hubbard is involved in that whole circle around Jack Parsons. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh. So there's no doubt in my mind that that